Uh, well, I have titled the sermon this morning, The Announcement, and I don't mean to suggest by the title that I have some major announcement, but rather that God has made a major announcement to all peoples, and this is the God who has created all things, who stands as Lord over all things, and who all human beings will meet when they die, the one true living God has made an announcement to the world. Uh, it seems like the sort of thing that we should be paying attention to. Now, when God made the announcement, it was a local announcement. It was not advertised on the radio. There was not a press conference. But we do have a transcript of what was said. And God, in His power, in His wisdom, has used this over the centuries to circulate this announcement throughout the entire world. And this is the announcement. Now, this is my summary of it. The announcement can be summarized as follows. Dear people of the world, my son has been born to you. He is your savior. He is the Messiah that I promised would come from my people. He is the king of all peoples. I have now delivered to you my only son as an offering of peace toward men of goodwill. Sincerely, the Most High God. Now, I'm summarizing this in my own words. We're going to read the announcement here in a moment. But the point that I'm trying to get across is that we are not merely reading a cute story when we, we stumble upon Luke chapter 2 and we read about these angels showing up and talking here. This, this is not... This is not you know, some spiritual, you know, mythology. Um, we are reading the announcement of a father that his son has been born. And I, ha I have children. Um, I remember during Allison's pregnancies, the anticipation that was building as the time for her to give birth drew near. Um, so with Jesus, there is an anticipation that's building, but where our family was building anticipation for, you know, a nine-month period of time, um, getting ready and trying to prepare things. The anticipation of Jesus was not a typical anticipation of a child. This had, this had been building for a couple of thousand years. Um, uh, going back to the original uh, patriarchs, the original people of God, they had been anticipating when this son of God that the prophet said would come would be born. And, and, and it is climaxing, even if we look at Roman historians, they are making note of the great anticipation of the nation of Israel at this time, this particular time, that a Messiah would be born. And we, we recognize the reason for their sensitivity that the Messiah would be born to them at this time from the study that we've done in Daniel earlier this year. This was not an ignorance. This was not vain hope. But God had told them that the prince who is to come would be born. And he had given them a time frame to expect that arrival. And so there is an anticipation here that has been in the work for a long, long time. And when my children were born, uh, what do you do when a baby's born? Well, uh, you know, I guess if you are fortunate enough to have a child born in the middle of the day, which we were usually not, you can take your time and, uh, and let everybody know. But we had children born in the middle of the night. And so 
there were lots of people who didn't even know we had gone to the hospital. And so when the child is born, you, you tell people. You send out messages. Back when my kids were born, you called people. Right? You weren't sending out messages. You, weren't, uh, you, you let people know, and you'd say, hey, this is, this is our child that's been born. This is what he or she is like. You know, it always strikes me. I don't know if it ever strikes you odd. Uh, here's the height and here is the weight. You know, I, I don't know if there's more useless information uh, to hear about someone's baby than how long, you know, it's like, oh, that was a really big baby. It's two inches bigger than the one that, I, that we had. I mean, it's like, anyway, but you tell the details. This is my, this is how, this is where he's at. And you can come see him here or we will be home here. Well, not visitors yet or visitors at this time. But this is, parts of this are very, very relatable but when the Son of God is born, this is an announcement to be sent out globally. Here is my Son. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And if I can editorialize a little bit in light of the rest of the Gospels, we hope that you will meet Him soon. Um, if you'll turn and, and look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, where this announcement is recorded, um, you know, the first seven verses deal with the, the birth of Christ, which Pastor Steve has, has covered in previous weeks uh, very well. And now that God's only son has been born of the world, we read beginning in verse 8, the announcement of his birth, and, and here it is. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, as we look at the announcement this morning, I'd like to break it down into seven things. Seven things that we're going to recognize. The first one we'll spend the most time on, so don't get anxious as we go through this. The last six will flow from there. But first, and this is perhaps the most critical at the beginning, God is not announcing judgment. The angels come right away. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. If a supernatural being showed up to me in the middle of the night when I was out in the field, I would be afraid. I'd probably be afraid for a lot of reasons, but one of them would be what is going to happen to me next. And God is not showing up to deliver judgment. That is not this kind of visitation. Human beings deserve judgment. I know it's not an overly welcome Christmas theme, but the story of Christmas doesn't make sense without this part. We expect, as human beings, that we will experience some sort of judgment. We know that we are not completely good. Even people who claim that they do not believe in God will often say things like, what goes around comes around. Um, they'll say things like, well, you know, I believe in karma, you know. Once you do good things, good things will happen. You do bad things, then bad things will happen. And, and it's the expression of a fear that what they'll experience in the future is in some way related to, to the things that they do now because they know they can do good or evil 
And if they do bad, then they expect that somewhere along the line that will be revisited upon them. A lot of lines and a lot of good movies uh, I feared one day, I think this is from The Patriot, this is a Mel Gibson movie, uh, I feared one day my sins would be revisited. Jeff's nodding, he's seen this movie, maybe you haven't. Not exactly a Christmas movie for your holiday week, but, but this idea that we will face judgment for the way that we live and the things that we've done wrong, the idea of, of a looming judgment is not foreign to the Bible. The Bible says that we were made in the image of God and that we possess as human beings a conscience, the knowledge of basic morality written on our hearts. Um, God, the author who has made us in our, in our own capacity, created in an image to reflect Him, has written a basic understanding of morality on the hearts of all people. Here's the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 describing this. For when Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, you and I, who do not have the law, that's the moral instruction of the Bible, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now what Paul is saying here is that um, you do not have to be an expert on the Bible to know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And when someone who doesn't know the Bible at all, never read a single law from a single page, when someone who doesn't know anything about the morality that God possesses still makes an effort to live up to certain moral principles outlined by God in the Bible, they reveal an instinctual knowledge of good and evil that God has written on their hearts. We call this a conscience. We understand what it is. Here Paul says that when the Gentiles by nature do the things that are in the law. They show that the law of God is written on their hearts. Their conscience reveals that God has given all of us a sense of divine morality. It's quite a thing when you think about it, that you and I possess innately a sense of divine morality. And if we as human beings have a natural understanding of good and evil, then we know that on some level, in some way, at some point in time, we will be held accountable for whether we have lived in a good way or an evil way, which is what Paul speaks of in the passage. He speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Men and women, teenagers, children gathered today, uh, God has spoken to all of the humanity in this world. And what he has said, he's also impressed upon the hearts of all peoples that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. And God has promised that evil will be judged. Not some evil, not someone else's evil, but all evil. There is perhaps no more sobering, intimidating verse in all the Bible than Hebrews 9.27, which says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. The gravity of that verse 
can really suck in somebody's soul for a few minutes. I uh, grew up as a pastor's son. I've shared this before. I lived in the parsonage across the way. Um, right next door was a cemetery. And my dad is a pastor. You know, New Paris is not a huge community. Um, we're surrounded by a lot of farm community. My dad would often get called to perform funerals, sometimes for people we knew, oftentimes for people that we didn't. As a kid, I would tag along, you know, I'm 12, 13, 14 years old, small church like ours, uh, and he would say, son, you sit in the back and turn this microphone up when it's time, hit play for this CD when it's time, and we'll get through this this funeral. And most of the time, it's people that I don't know, and, and I'd sit in the back, and I'd do what he told me, up and down, and play, and stop, and try not to mess anything up uh, during a funeral as a teenage boy, but uh, something is impressed upon you the more that you're around people who have died, and people who are mourning those who have died. The more that you're around coffins, and cemeteries, and burials, and sermons about people who are now facing the Lord Jesus Christ, something is impressed upon you that, frankly, as soon as those funerals were over, uh, the first thing I wanted to do was get out of there and do something very different, <laughs> very, di let's move on, because death is a, is a tragedy. Death is not a, a happy thing, um, it's not a good thing, um, I will even make the very correct Christian statement and say that death is not a natural thing. God did not create us that we should die. Um, this verse, like many of those funerals, is a sobering reminder in the middle of God's Word of the end that is coming. And when it comes, God who is concerned with justice will not turn a blind eye to the way that we have lived. Many of you will see family members over the Christmas holiday and there will be a lot of blind eyes being turned. <laughs> let's have a good day. <laughs> let's, let's get through the day. Let's not touch upon offenses of the past or sensitive issues. Or God will not turn a blind eye to evil. As we read, we read earlier from the Apostle Paul, he'll not only judge the things that we would be okay with him seeing, Paul said there in Romans, he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. It's a pretty sobering verse. But, and this is where we can smile for a second. The weight of Hebrews 9.27 is alleviated in the very next verse. See, that the author of Hebrews did not write this to weigh you down and burden you and cause fear and agony in your life. But the very next verse says this. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. I cannot imagine a happier thing in all the world. <laughs> it's appointed that a man wants to die, and after that, God is going to judge you. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That is a happy thing. I am a sinner. I know that I'm going to stand before God. I know that I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to be a father. I don't deserve to be a husband. I know what I deserve. Um, God has loved me, and in Christ, 
He has offered his only son to bear my sin on his shoulders. So these shepherds in Luke 2 do not have to be afraid. They don't have to be afraid. But rather, these angels are not showing up to announce judgment, but a Savior. Notice the language in the text here. Not, not someone else's Savior. A Savior, the Savior, born to who? To them. To them. That's what it says. There is this day born to you the Savior. God is not visiting the world in judgment in Luke 2. He is visiting the world in order to save us from judgment. And this, as verse 10 says, is a good tiding of great joy to all people. Not just Israel, but all people. Not just the people who were spiritually uh, high and lofty above the others. This is not just for scribes and Pharisees. This is not just for God's chosen nation, Israel. This is a message for all people. It is a Savior for the world. He's not just a Savior for religious Jews. He is the Savior of shepherds who live in fields with farm animals. He is a Savior for fishermen who wake up at midnight to go sail the Sea of Galilee to make ends meet. He is the Savior for criminals who are dying in execution. He is the Savior for lepers who are in desperation. He is their Savior. He is the Savior of construction workers and school teachers and people at drive through windows and businessmen in cubicles. And He is the Savior of mechanics and the Savior of mothers who are raising children and fathers who are dragging themselves to work every day to provide for them. He is the Savior to all people. This is, as it says, good news, good tidings of great joy. We are told explicitly that Jesus is not only the Savior, but He is also Christ. Christ meaning the Messiah of God that was promised. He is Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah that was promised by Daniel, that was promised in Genesis, that was promised by the other prophecies. He was a fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's promise for messianic rule. So he is Christ and Lord. Many people, I don't know if you found this, are very happy to have a Savior. Fewer people are happier to have a Lord. I understand that. The announcement from God is that Jesus is inseparably both. He may not be divided into preferable parts. Oh, someone says, I believe in the Savior part of Jesus. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that He rose from the grave. I like that part. I can sleep easy at night. I can speak hopefully to my family about death and the afterlife. And I don't have to worry about paying for my sin. Yes, please. I would like to have Jesus as my Savior. But you cannot have Jesus a la carte. You cannot order Jesus as if you were at a restaurant from a menu saying, I will take a Savior, hold the Lord part of it, please. I'll take Jesus as Savior and we'll just leave off the Lord, the Messiah part of the deal. He is Savior, He is Messiah, He is Lord. Obeying Him is not optional. Frankly, if you listen to any of His sermons in the Gospels, this part is plain as day. It does not take very long to get there. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, please let me into heaven because I did good things. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
I never knew you. You didn't do what I said. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And we know the little song, if you know the nursery rhyme and you went to uh, Sunday school when you were a child or vacation Bible school like I did. But the song never mentions the theological aspect of it. Who is the foolish man who watches his life crumble? He's the one who does not hear the words of Jesus and obey them. Anyone who doesn't hear these words that I speak and obey them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and when the rains came down, his whole life collapsed. Throughout history, there have been many lords and many kings. Some have been very good. Some have been very bad. I think it's theologically correct to say there is no form of government that is more prosperous for human beings than a monarchy with a good, generous, compassionate, and benevolent king. The problem, of course, is that we are all sinners. And even if you get one good king, eventually you're going to get one corrupted by sin to such an extent that it begins to necessitate a revolt of some kind or a pushback at some kind because the people are oppressed. We don't have a long string of good kings, and so we have our form of government, which is supposed to provide checks and balances so we can vote the corrupt out in theory, and move the corrupt aside, and make, you know, that's the whole idea. But Jesus is not corrupt. When a person says, I want Jesus to be my Lord, they find in Jesus a friend that sticks closer to a brother. That's, a, that's an apt description. Not a tyrant, not some detached leech of a king, but a friend, a true friend. When a person says, I want to serve King Jesus, they find a king with scars in his hands and scars in his feet and scar in his side to demonstrate, to remind us of the price that he has paid to save us. That is a king, a king who is willing to die for his people, a king who is willing to secure their peace at his own expense. That is a king that I can trust. The fourth thing in this announcement has to do with where these shepherds will find Jesus. Notice this. They will find the great and promised Lord of all creation in common cloth lying in a manger. Here is the great Son of God. Here is the Lord of heaven and earth. Here is the promised Messiah of Genesis, of Daniel, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel. And you shepherds can go find him. He's wrapped up in the cloth that peasant people use to bury people and to wrap infants in. And he's resting in a feed trough that's being used as a crib. And this is where you will find the Savior of the world. See, when we think of Jesus, we have to remember that his father is not concerned with the kinds of things that our fathers are concerned with. God is not offended by the nativity. God is not ashamed of Mary and Joseph. He's not ashamed of their poverty. God is not embarrassed by his son's clothes or his son's bassinet. How can that be? Well, let God explain it himself in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. God is not like me. He doesn't need fancy things to prove anything to anyone. He's not embarrassed by the nativity. 
He is pleased to announce His Son. And in the same chapter, in verse 6 of Isaiah 55, the prophet tells the people, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And these shepherds, in a sense, are hearing a very similar message. Go seek the Lord. He is near. He can be found. He is in a manger. He is nearby. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And you will find Him in a palace, born to a princess or a queen, you will find him lowly. He will be in a manger because he hasn't come to be served but to serve others. Here's Jesus' description of himself in Matthew 20. This is verse 28. It's his own words to describe his coming. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that I can follow. If he's rescued me from hell... That's the kind of king that I must follow, that I must follow. I feel on my own heart in life a compelling sense from the Spirit of God that Jesus is one who must be obeyed, who must be honored. When I read the Bible and when I look at my life and when I consider what He has done for me, there is an otherworldly drive that God places upon my heart. This king must be served. I don't feel that way about any other man or woman. I feel obligation to serve other men and women. But when I think about who Jesus is, when I think about the kind of king who says, come to me, all of you who are Weary, who are tired and heavy burden, and I will give you rest for your soul. I am compelled to follow Jesus. I, I am not a young man anymore, and there are many of you older than me. I have tried pleasure and lots of different things in life, and there are things that can provide happiness for a while. But I find in my life there is no lasting sense of joy found in any other than in Jesus Christ. The things that I love most in the world either get old or get corrupted or somehow get confused. There is no lasting sense of joy found other than in Jesus Christ. Well, then in verse 14, you see the opposite of the lowliness of a manger scene. If the manger shows us the lowliness of a newborn Savior, verse 15 gives us a glimpse at the majesty because all of a sudden they are surrounded by a great heavenly host and they are all singing and they are praising glory to God in the highest. So you got the lowly part of it and you get the other side of the coin here. Do not be confused when you look at the manger scene. You should look at the manger scene and see a Savior who was born to serve. You should look at the manger scene and see the Lamb of God who came to die. You should look at the manger scene and see the lowliness of Christ. But if you look at the sky in verse 15, you see the glory of Christ the Lord. And he doesn't need a palace or robes to anoint him on this earth. He doesn't need to, to garner the respect of human beings by the vastness of his established riches here when it comes to things that are dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Any time, any time, there needs to be a reminder of the glory of Jesus Christ. There will simply be a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
Whenever the disciples are getting a little too familiar with Jesus, and Lord, let's do this, or Lord, let's do this, there's a great shining cloud of glory to envelop them and to drive them to their knees to remind them in that brief moment, this is my son, hear him. It's okay to marvel at the lowliness of Jesus in the manger as long as you do not forget the awesome, terrible, supernatural nature of the all-inspiring Son of God who is coming to rule and reign in glory and power, who will literally remake the earth. What is God being praised for then? He is offering peace to us. You realize that? This is not the kind of peace between us. That's not what the offer is. It's not the kind of peace where we stop shooting guns at each other or the kind of peace I have when I've paid all my bills for the month. That's not what this is about. This is God offering peace to us, his enemies. We still live in a sinful world. We still deal with the consequences of sin. We still have to navigate a world that's waiting the return of Jesus Christ, but the peace that God is being praised for is between Him and me. Because of this Savior, Jesus, and His work on the cross, I can have peace with God. I don't have to be judged as an evildoer. Who can receive this peace? The verse tells us, men of goodwill. Only the King James and the New King James translate this verse, goodwill toward men. It should be rendered on earth, peace toward men of goodwill. Not everybody is going to be saved. Not everybody is going to have peace with God. Those who are seeking Him, those who are seeking God may find Him in Christ. This is the promise of David to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. You ever take a moment as a dad to try to say something apart from normal conversation of significance to your son or to your daughter? You ever take a moment and just kind of let it settle? Hey, I want to tell you something. This is serious. You ever do something like that? Here is David to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Solomon, we do not serve a God who'll keep you far away from him. If you seek the Lord, you will find him. It's the promise of God to his people Israel in Jeremiah 29, 13, where it says very much the same thing. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And then in Acts 15, for the New Testament perspective of this, when non-Jewish people begin to come to Jesus Christ after the death and resurrection of the Lord, James stands up and he says, this is exactly what God said he would do through the prophet Amos. And he quotes the prophet Amos. He says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by his name. That's Acts 15, 17. Who are these men of goodwill? They are people who are earnestly seeking the Lord. Peace towards those people. When you hear God's announcement that His Son Jesus has been born, the question that every one of us at one point in time have to ask ourselves is whether we want peace with God or not. 
Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that through his life, death, and resurrection, peace with God is not far from us, and God has established his clear intention to have peace with us. If we seek it, we can have it in Christ. If we seek God, we may know God in Jesus. That's the story of Christmas. Peace and fellowship with God is found in the birth of this child. Let me close with a story, a little bit different. One day, Jesus stood on a mountain, and he preached the most famous sermon in history, a sermon on the mount. And in this sermon, he basically tells everyone, that they are not going to go to heaven by trying to live good lives. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There are some really unsettling things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's funny because so many people who don't, who don't know their Bible will use things from the Sermon on the Mount to try to depict Jesus as this all-inviting Savior who everybody can come. They'll say like, in Matthew 7, that's from the same sermon, judge not lest you be judged, right? Or they'll say, well, I like the part where it says, love your enemies. You know, that's from the Sermon on the Mount. I like these things. But it's very clear they've not read the last chapter, the closing arguments of the Lord. Because he begins the sermon by saying, unless you people are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. And he closes the sermon by telling them, that they're not going to heaven unless they call Him Lord and obey Him. Now, I obviously was not there that day, but I cannot imagine how that conclusion fell upon the crowds of people listening to Jesus. To summarize it, Matthew 7 closes with saying, and everybody marveled because of the authority that he taught with, right? And that is an other level nature of authority here. I mean, Jesus has basically broken the golden rule of preaching. Do not make the sermon all about you. That's what he's done. <laughs> he concludes by saying, unless you call me Lord and do everything that I say, you're not going to heaven. It's pretty remarkable stuff. And then as he's walking down from the mountain where he preached, we read this in Matthew chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Presumably, this man had listened to the sermon. I'm, I'm going to presume that. And he was much closer to death than most of the other listeners because he has leprosy. No one could touch him. By law, he wasn't even supposed to be close to other people. He wasn't, certainly wasn't supposed to be walking up to someone. Um, he was considered infectious, and no matter how sympathetic or compassionate people might have felt towards him, he was dangerous to them. And they would have stayed far away at all costs. And the leper comes up to Jesus. And lo and behold, what does he call him but Lord? There were lots of people at the time calling Jesus rabbi, good teacher. You don't find so many of them calling him Lord. And in light of what Jesus had presumably just finished preaching... That unless he is called Lord and obeyed, no one goes to heaven. By using this word Lord, this leprous man 
has essentially declared that he believes what Jesus has just said. He was listening at the end of chapter 7. He believes this. That everyone will stand before Jesus as Lord when they die. And that when we speak of enduring the judgment of God, it is Jesus who will be presiding over the court. And the leper is ready to call Jesus Lord. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And verse 3 says, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And the man was cleaned. Now, you think about this. Why do we have a three-verse story like this in the, in the middle of Matthew's gospel? Three verses is not very long for a story. I mean, again, presumably, we're told Jesus healed lots of people. There were, I believe, probably a lot of these kinds of things. So why do we have a three-verse story about a leprous man? From which beyond this, we don't get... I mean, I don't know what happens to this guy in the rest of his life. Why do we have this? Well, on the heels of Jesus announcing himself the Lord who must be obeyed in order to go to heaven, we get an immediate picture of what kind of Lord he is. He is a Lord who is willing to save. Jesus does not challenge this man. He doesn't question his motives. We have a man who wants to be saved. He believes Jesus is who he claims to be, and he asks Jesus, please save me. And Jesus said, I am willing. And I find in this story... A beautiful picture of the good news that God has announced in Luke 2. This is the son that God sent in Luke 2. This is the son that God announced in Luke 2. That in Jesus, God is willing to save. And if you are a Christian today, at some point in your life, you have turned to Jesus and you have prayed, Lord, I believe you are who you are. Can you save me? Please save me. Please save me. If, if you are willing. And Jesus has replied to the Christian, I'm willing. If you're not a Christian, then your enmity with God exists solely because you are unwilling to have peace with God. Because He is willing to save. This, in a nutshell, is what Christmas is about. If you look at the coming of Jesus, you must see, you must see, God is willing to save. God is willing to make peace. And that is good news. So let me close by this. Today is the day to make peace with God. Today is the day to make peace with God. If peace between you and God does not exist already, today is the day to be saved by this Savior. He is willing. That's the message this morning. Let's pray. Father, for all the things that we do to try to reflect and think about who you are, I ask, Father, that in the nativity scenes and in our traditions and in the reading of the text, that our hearts will be drawn to the fact that in your character, you have demonstrated love for sinners and the sending of your only Son to be the sacrifice that we ourselves could not provide in order that we be saved. Father, I pray that anyone sitting here today who doesn't know you will see all of these things as an extension, as an olive branch, as a gesture of peace that you have made before meeting you in judgment, that they will not only crawl to the altar, but they will crawl quickly before your throne in prayer and with the humility of a leper come before you and ask that you save them. God, I know you are willing. 
I've seen the change that you bring about in people's lives when you save. I've seen it over days. I've seen it over decades. And I know the joy that there is in following you as Lord. Compel the heart that teeters on the edge this morning to bend the knee and to ask for peace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.